I like to have a needy podium, when I, nice and neat podium when I'm speaking. Uh, well, it's Advent, and I don't know what kind of stories come to your mind when Advent comes, but I have a particular story that comes to mind that uh, brings me back to the summer before my senior year in college. You see, I needed some money, and so I thought that I would go ahead and get a job. So I took a job loading trucks at UPS, which is an incredibly hard job. I used to bring a giant gallon of water, and I'd get into these semis, and I'd start breaking them apart, and literally I would sweat so much that the bottom of my boots would get filled with sweat. I know that's gross, but it's a true story. Um, and, and it was horrible. And what made the job worse is we had this boss, and this boss was one of those people that just knew how to demean you in all the ways that he could get away with without you needing to call HR. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was just like these little belittling, like, looks and comments and nonverbals, and it just added a level of ugh to the whole job. But if things weren't bad enough, what made it the ultimate worst was at 3 a.m. That was when the shift started, as soon as Christmas kicked in. It's about, about this time right now, people start sending packages. And that meant that our work doubled. It started swelling. And, and so I'm getting up at 2 a.m. Uh, I had still had a full load of school. I'm trying to deal with this boss who's crazy. I'm sweating like a dog. I remember coming to my 7.30 chemistry class, like everyone's like, oh, it's so early in the morning. I'm like, are you kidding me? I just worked like a full shift. And I, you know, I, you know, I'm looking, it was just like the whole, the whole time was a haze. And, and then this was the moment that I think about. I'm in my car at 2.30, on my way to the giant UPS plant to do all, my, all this uh, work. And I turn on the radio to try to stay awake, and what comes on? Holly jolly Christmas. <laughs> Have a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. And I thought, what in the world? No, it's not the best time of the year. It's the worst time of the year. See, is that okay? Is it okay that for some of us, this season is actually a difficult season? That it's dark? That maybe you feel a little bit like an outsider? That everybody's having a holly jolly Christmas? They're all burning yuletide logs, whatever that means. You know, they're all sipping their pumpkin spice lattes and strolling through the lights, and you're so busy and exhausted, and your life is dark, and things are not going well, and there's people in your life maybe that are over you, that are making your life difficult? Is that okay? Well, to answer that question, we need to come back to what is Advent? What is this season really about? And that's what we're going to do over the next four weeks. We're going to take a look at Advent, the season when we're supposed to be in a period of anticipation, a period of longing. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start this new series in Advent, and we are going to use the prince of the prophets, Isaiah. Yes, I love Isaiah. You know, Isaiah was a wordsmith. Isaiah puts things so beautifully, like the passage we just read, where you're just like, wow, that's just gorgeous. So just dripping with meaning and swelling with so much just beauty. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to start by looking, and you know, Pastor Josh always gives me the best text. I know he loves me because he gives me the best text when these things get divided up. Uh, we're going to start with Isaiah 9, which we just read. And this morning, I'm going to ask three questions. This is where I give you a roadmap, so you know where we're going. I'm going to ask three questions this morning. Um, the first question is, who is this talking about? The second question is, what is being promised? 
And the third question is, how is it accomplished? So that's what we're doing this morning. So let's start right off with who is this text talking about? Who is this text talking about? And of course, somebody say, well, we just read it. It's for those who are walking in darkness. That's right. It is for those who are walking in darkness. That's who the text is for. But there's an immediate context, actually, that tells us a little bit more about who this text is talking about. It starts off in chapter 9, verse 1, but if you actually look a little bit earlier, right at the end of chapter 8, you read this. Behold, the stress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Okay, so that gives us another clue. Some people that are seriously in anguish, some people that are in trouble. To understand who this text, the immediate context of who this text is talking about, we need a little bit, go a little bit farther back. See, Isaiah is writing to the people of Israel during a time of national crisis, a series, a cascading series of things have accumulated in their lives so that their lives are filled with anguish and difficulty. And if you read through Isaiah, coming all the way up to chapter nine, you see these things happen. One to five is a litany, a list of how their culture had become corrupt, how they had become a, a people that were self-absorbed. They were engaging in deceitful business practices. They weren't fulfilling their marriage vows. Everything was working off of bribes. They were hoarding their resources. They lacked compassion. Basically, the culture is becoming corrupt. They were neglecting God. They were a culture, and it says this, that were calling good evil and evil good. And then... To make things worse, in chapter 6, we hear that King Uzziah died. And what does that mean? Well, King Uzziah is an important person because King Uzziah had reigned for over 50 years. And back in the ancient Near East, it was a good thing to have somebody on the throne for 50 years. It meant political, social, economic stability. And as soon as a king dies, all the other nations around are thinking, hmm, this might be a good time if we're ever going to pick a fight to pick a fight. And so when King Uzziah dies, there's an immediate question about the future. And who fills that vacuum? Probably one of the worst kings, Ahaz, a terrible leader. Instead of looking to God, and you know, Isaiah is telling Ahaz, Ahaz, don't freak out. We know Assyria is, is huge. They're eyeing our property. We know Egypt is over on the other side. Trust God. And Ahaz is like, nope. And so he goes ahead and he tries to bribe Egypt. It is one of the worst botched uh, kind of international diplomacy things in history. He basically goes to Egypt. It's like, yeah, can I give you some money to protect us from uh, Assyria? And of course, it's like a mouse going to a cat in order to get it to protect it from another cat. And both cats are like, oh, look at this. This is nice. <laughs> and so Egypt takes the money and then hands them over to Assyria. You know, and so... This is their situation. By the time we get to chapter 8, the people of Israel have learned, not only have they made a mess of things, and their sin has caused their own society to be corrupted, but now their leader has completely made a mess of things and botched things, and that the people learned that Assyria is now going to invade. There's a national emergency. They're facing a national emergency. And just, and just in case you wonder, Assyria this is not a nice group. These were the Nazis of their day. They were famous for their brutality, okay? And so this is the situation we find in Isaiah 8.22. Behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So these people are walking 
in the shadow of death. They know this is inevitable. They know that they are going to see all hell break loose. And this is the context that Isaiah is speaking into. Of course, um, uh, that helps us understand, okay, when we get to 9-1, what's going on. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. All right, I'm going to do this. Oh, we're going to try to do No, it's not going to work. That's okay. If you could draw a line straight across there, you see that there's an indentation here, okay? And that indentation tells us that right there, oh, there we go. Yay. I feel so high tech right now. <laughs> I finally use my Apple pen. Um, that tells us that we have actually kind of like an introduction, and then we have the general prophecy, and so there is an immediate context. The immediate context is the gloom and anguish of the invasion of Assyria, but the more general context is the people who walked in darkness. Now it becomes a little bit more general in scope. The prophecy takes on a broad sense, people walking in darkness. Yeah, immediately it's these people. It's their darkness. It's their woundedness. It's the way in which they have been sold out by a leader. It's the way in which they've seen their own, they're, they're partly responsible and, it's, and they're partly not. And, and th their lives are a mess. But there's a broader sense here. Anyone with darkness in their lives is now being addressed. Anyone who hates their life, anyone who is mired in something that causes anguish, anyone who's been duped by others, anyone for whom death casts a shadow. And maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, that's the ancient Near East. Like, we don't even do death here. You know, it used to be like if, you know, uh, you know, your spouse died back, you know, back in the day, you would like literally bury them out back by the barn, right? You'd have them there. You'd do the funeral right there. I mean, those were, that's, that's before. We, we can't even imagine that. See, we've removed death from our society. But, but this is an interesting thing. It's a little bit of a side, but I want, I want to throw this in there. If you've ever read Albert Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus, it talks about if you really take death serious and the way it erases the meaning in our lives, if you really take that serious, you realize it kind of leaves you with this flatness to your existence. Or if you don't like that, you can look at Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death. And Becker is a Pulitzer-winning book, 1975, but an amazing book. And he says, even though we don't see death around us in the West, we've sublimated death. Because if this life is all there is, we have to resort to looking to things like sex and money and achievement and material possessions in order to feel like our lives matter. We have to soak it all up right now. And so in a certain sense, we are all in this culture walking in the shadow of death. It doesn't disappear. We simply sublimate it and our lives are empty as a result. So who is this speaking to? Well, it's speaking to really everybody. Both those who came in here this morning where you have anguish, where you're saying, you know what, this season, I don't get it. Those of you who feel like you've been wounded, those of you who feel like you've had leaders deeply let you down, but actually all of us, because all of us one day are going to face death. So what is being promised? What is being promised? Well, what's being promised is an amazing turnaround you know, from, from, uh, amazing turnaround takes place in, in chapter nine. We just read it. 
Uh, if this was a French film, you know, Isaiah would have ended in chapter eight and you know, everybody would have died in the rain alone and that's it, right? Assyria would have invaded and there we are. But chapter 9-1 tells us, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. But. Now, that, that little three-letter word is incredibly important, right? That's incredibly important. But is a great word in the Bible. We were unfaithful but God is faithful. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy. We are in darkness, but light is coming. In the former times, there was gloom. In the latter times, there is glory, right? And you have this kind of in the former, and then you have this in the latter. So there's this contrast, this contrast between the former times, the latter times. There's a movement from gloom to glory. There's a movement from darkness to light, okay? From, from deep darkness to a brilliant light. This is what's taking place. There's this great transition, an amazing turnaround. But something else is promised. And in order to see what is promised, we have to get back up here to Zebulun and Naphtali. What is that about? the Sea of Galilee. There's a promise that there's going to be a great light shining, okay, in that region. Um, Matthew chapter four. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, that's in Galilee, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee, the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. He, he quotes this passage. And then, because this is the launch of Jesus' ministry, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want to include this because that line repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's exactly the song we just sang, that new song. Wake up, church. Repent. Open up your eyes because God is going to do something and we can't stop him. Nobody can turn it around. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what is it about Galilee? Well, Galilee sees this great light. That great light is Jesus. And it's interesting that Jesus chose Galilee. Why Galilee? Why does he make a beeline to Galilee as soon as he starts his ministry? Well, yeah, he fulfills the prophecy, but we already heard about Galilee. Galilee is a place that you don't want to be from because Galilee is where every single invasion goes through because of the geography. It's kind of like, you know, kind of like Ukraine. Like if you look at the history of Ukraine, it's like it's always a thoroughfare for some army going somewhere. And the people that are there get the brunt of it. And so the people in Galilee had received the worst. And it's the people that receive the worst, those who are most despairing, those who have been treated as most expendable, those who are the most brokenhearted. Jesus makes a beeline. And if that's you this morning, Jesus makes a beeline to you. That's the heart of Jesus. That is the heart of Jesus. I didn't come to call the healthy, but those who need a physician. I didn't come to save the righteous, but those who are sinners in need of help. That is the heart of Jesus. He heads straight to Galilee. That's where his ministry starts. 
So God promises a great light to come from Galilee to shine on those in darkness. And then God promises something else. He promises a great turnaround for those who see the light. And what does this turnaround also involve? Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Those who see this light will be a multitude. And of course, there's an echo in here when it uses the word multitude. Two verses. Two verses that bookend, right? Genesis, this great promise to Abraham. God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And then in Revelation, we read, look and behold, a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So this light shines, those that see it begin swelling into a multitude. When, when, you know, when he uses the word uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, that, Isaiah is the only one that uses that phrase. And it's interesting he uses that. People say, why is he saying that? Why is he saying Gentile, uh, Galilee of the nations? Isaiah understands that there's this sense in which this multitude is going to swell and it starts in Galilee. And by the way, some of that multitude is sitting in these pews today. It's amazing. And what is it, this promise? This multitude is going to be filled with joy. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. And then there's two metaphors. As with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. You know, it's like the first one, joy at a harvest. You know, when you get far beyond what you expected and all your needs are met, it's like you get this giant Christmas bonus. You're like, wah, We've got it all. We're good. You know, as the spoils of the enemy, you know, that there's a great victory where you celebrate because now you have just, your, your enemy is vanquished and you've got everything you need. Both, by the way, a harvest and a military conquest were seen as gifts from God. And then one commentator says, uh, uh, joy, uh, it comes from both um, nature and history. In other words, every kind of joy known, these kind of represent all kinds of joy, all the different forms of joy. So we know there's going to be a great turnaround. We know there's going to be a great light from Galilee. We know that those who see the light are going to swell into a giant multitude of people filled with joy. And then we go on. God is going to work a miraculous salvation for those who see the light. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of the oppressor. Look at these words, yoke, staff, rod. Okay, that should have the echo of Egypt, the people of Israel stuck in Egypt under the domination of Pharaoh. And then what's this? You have broken as on the day of Midian. Who's Midian? Well, if you go to Judges, Midian is this guy who's hiding out when the Midianites have conquered and dominated Israel. And God comes and says, oh, valiant warrior. Like this guy's hiding out, right? I'm going to use you to rescue the people of Israel. And he's like, okay. He doesn't want to do it. He comes off. And then he gets an army of 32,000 people. And then God's like, no, we got to pare that down. You're going to take on the entire nation of Midian with 300. And the whole point is, is this needs to be a miracle and it's not going to be your doing. And that's the point here. God is going to, for this multitude who see this light, he is going to break the oppression. He's going to remove their enemies He's going to do it in a miraculous way so that nobody could say it was anything but God. An absolutely miraculous salvation. God wins the war for his people. They don't lift a finger. And then, finally, 
I mean, there's some big promises. Am I getting pumped up yet? Anybody? Okay. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. God wins the war for his people and God will not only win the war for us, God will actually get rid of war itself. The warrior will no longer need his battle boot. There will be no more garments rolled in blood, which means that war will be no more and the resources of war are going to be repurposed in order to serve, which that's worth kind of thinking for just a second based upon how much of your gross national product need to contribute to articles of war if you're part of NATO or whatever, right? Like there's a lot of resources that go into war. We, we include, you know, other things that we have to guard against, you know, security systems. We just found out we were overpaying, you know, no more security system, baby. Okay. So, you know, there's lots of, lots of things that are kind of rolled into this, this great conquest. So here's the question. Can you imagine a politician promising that during his camp, during his uh, rule, if you elect him, he is going to move people from gloom and anguish to incredible joy. He's going to erase all hunger. People will have a complete bounty. He'll destroy anxiety, remove all injustice, all oppression, and war itself. What would you say if somebody promised that? Right. Okay. So the question is, how is this going to be accomplished? How is this accomplished. And it's not politics as usual. You know, every, I, I just had like a little bit of a, a, a I don't know if it's a trigger or like a, a traumatic flashback or something, but when we had the midterm elections, it feels like every time we do this dance, it's a dance of disappointment. You know, our politicians come out, they come with all their big promises, you know, we elect them, then we inevitably move into a season of disappointment. And then what do we do again? We look for new politicians. And the cycle continues, you see? And, and, you know, I mean, that's the best we can do in this world, right? But uh, it's like we don't learn that politics is not the ultimate solution. Here we are in 2022, you know, and we have nuclear saber, saber rattling. We have food shortages. We have a global energy crisis. We have uh, the UN, which doesn't seem to be able to do anything about rogue dictators that just step on human rights. You know, and then if we step back and just assess world history, it should be obvious that no politician, locally or globally, is going to emerge to solve the problems of global power, global economy, global humanity, right? There's no bloody revolution that is going to solve the ongoing issues we face as a human race. There's no perfect writing of a constitution that is going to erase the situations that we face globally. You know, there's, there's no realigning of class consciousness or some kind of moment where we all, you know, come together and join hands and sing Kumbaya. That's not, that's not going to happen. There's no reformulation of the United Nations that is going to solve really the issues that have afflicted humanity from the beginning. So what is God's answer to the world's problems? Like I said, it's not politics as usual. God's answer is very surprising. Extremely surprising. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. God answers these incredibly complex issues that humanity can never quite 
get a handle on with a child, with a baby. Is there anything more vulnerable than a human baby? You know, those little baby sea turtles, as soon as they hatch, those things are able to like book straight to the ocean and swim, boom. You know, I watched a documentary about this mother elephant gives birth, the baby just drops out, it's like clean them up and keep moving. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're moving. Move, baby, move. A human baby like needs like 20 hours of sleep and it's not consecutive, that'd be way too easy, right? <laughs> a human baby is completely helpless. Nothing, they can't do anything for themselves for a long time. God is going to use a human baby. It's amazing. You know, God doesn't play the same political games as Ahaz, using bribes and secret alliances to get everybody on his side. God doesn't pull a Syrian, I'm the biggest bully in the block move. Unto us, a child is born. God loves to use weak things. 1 Corinthians 1.27, God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. How does God take all the terrible tyrants and dictators and Satan and the whole mess of that horrible mob that has been destroying humanity over the years, how does he go against them? Come on, son. There's no match for them. He uses his son. A child is born. Adad Narari II how many of you have heard of Adad Narari II? Nobody. Okay. Well, he thought he was a somebody. He was an Assyrian ruler, and he had these words etched into his palace wall. I am royal. I am lordly. I am mighty. Well, I am honored. I'm exalted. I'm glorified. I'm powerful. I'm all-powerful. I'm brilliant. I am lion-like. I am manly. I'm supreme, I'm noble, I'm violent. I am Adad Nirari, the mighty king, the king of Assyria, powerful in battle, strong hero, like fire I burn, like the storm I cast down. At the mention of my name, the four regions of the world tremble. What was your name again? We never heard of it. <laughs> Anybody ever hear of Jesus? Guy sounds like somebody needs a therapist to get some insecurity issues taken care of. <laughs> Only God can conquer the evil forces in this world with a child. Only God can do that, but God loves to use weak things. By the way, if anybody's feeling like I felt while working at UPS during the season, and you feel really weak, and you feel like there's a lot of darkness and you hate your life, you know what? God loves to use weak things. God moves towards weak things. He wants to meet you in your weakness. He sees it as a strength. For us, to, for us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Whoa, 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 wait a minute here. This sounds like a concentration of power. And I'm a good American, and I know there should be checks and balances. What does this mean? This one person is going to have the government on their shoulders? That doesn't sound like a good idea. And, and there's something to this, right? Autocracy is on the rise globally, okay? A lot of autocrats. We're having trouble actually doing global uh, politics without interacting and forming allegiances and getting into economic deals with autocrats. We're Americans. We believe in checks and balances. We believe in dispersing the power. 
But what did those who wrote the Constitution, what did they think? Why did they think we needed to have checks and balances? You know why? Because they knew that human beings couldn't handle the power. They knew there was something deeply wrong. They actually believed in the Bible's doctrine of sin. And you don't want to give too much power to one person because people's hearts are dark. You also know about the Lord of the Rings. But the hearts of men are easily corrupt and the ring of power has a will of its own. There's our autocrats at the bottom, by the way. The Lord of the Rings adds one more piece to the feature, namely that possibly someone who is small, childlike, with enough humility could could actually pull it off, could hold that kind of power. Someone, maybe like a child, someone who has the capacity to be absolutely untarnished, unable to be bought, So there is a reason to believe that this prince who found himself born in a manger, came riding in on a donkey, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, is actually the first person in history that can hold the power to be the king of this world. And that's the good news of Isaiah 9. And his name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. In other words, he's going to be unlike any leader in history. Here we read of a young leader, a young prince who's worth believing in. The first one in history where we don't have to wait till we find out the backstory about their life. The first world leader where we're not waiting to find out the first time they're going to let us down. The first time we have actually a leader who is finally not hiding the true facts, completely transparent. And here's some some descriptions of this leader, a wonderful counselor. What does that mean, wonderful? He's not going to be recycling the same old defunct approaches that have never quite fixed things. The idea that he's a counselor means that he has this capacity for elegant solutions. Wonderful there means like we marvel at the solutions this person comes up with. Now go with me on this, because this is the point of the sermon, okay? You're gonna need to open your imagination for this sermon to work, because we have been hemmed in and we've been inured. There's a good GRE word, inured. That means where you've had something happen so often and you've deflected yourself so much that you can't get out of this position. And you read that, oh, there's gonna be a child and he'll actually be able to do it right. We're like, ah, really? Ah, I'll stay here, please. No, Jesus is going to know how to do it. He's going to know how to fix the economy. He's going to know how to deal with world hunger. He's going to know how to deal with the real problems that this globe faces. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's either true or false. And if that's true, there's not better news. And by the way, he's not just a wonderful counselor for the world's problems. He's a wonderful counselor for our problems for our personal problems, for relationships. You name all the sciences, all the complexities. This is the mind of all minds that can solve those issues. Mighty God. Jesus governs with strength. He's not just a child, he's almighty God. Did you just read that in the Bible? If anybody ever tells you Jesus wasn't God, behold, a child is born, he will be mighty God. It's pretty, okay, right there. But anyway, mighty God, 
everlasting father. What does that mean? Is some kind of Trinitarian theological mumbo jumbo? This is not a statement about him being God the Father or something like that. It simply means that he has incredible compassion, incredible care, incredible nurture, like a good father. Jesus said, I will never, I will not leave you as orphans. Prince of peace. Peace, of course, you know, is what we need. But peace here has this sense of shalom, this capacity to understand the complexity of how things fit together in all of their various arrangements so that the harmony emerges. He brings shalom. I like how Ray Ortland puts it. As the wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. As the prince of peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies. Let's welcome his dominion. And then of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This new kingdom that Jesus is going to bring, we just sang about, it is going to be so humane. It's going to be filled with so much peace. There's going to be so much sanity. There's going to be so much happiness and just calm. Jesus is bringing an empire of grace. That is what Isaiah is telling us. And we can be a part of that. If we welcome his rule, it means that we will be standing when the last kingdom of this world, the last political entity of this world collapses in exhaustion, we'll be standing because his kingdom will be going on forever and ever. Long, you know, there will be a time, imagine, I know it's hard for us, in which the word Republican and Democrat will actually have no memory. It's like, what is that? Jesus' kingdom will go on. And when we're in that kingdom, there will never come a moment when we say, eh, he's probably ran out of ideas, he will continually surprise us. We, the finite, will experience the infinite one. And each moment will be better than the last forever. Okay, look, this is in the Bible. This is crazy, grandiose, amazing promises. You know, in this world, I don't, I don't care how much you love something, eventually it grows old, Right? Eventually, like, you know, I don't know. Just take, you, there's a million examples. You know, to, a new song comes, I love the song, I love the song. If you're like me, I played over and over and over and over and over. By, by the time I hit like number 27 play, I'm like, ah, okay, I'll listen to something else. But the promise here is that it is going to increase, it's going to move forward, it's going to constantly accelerate and get better and better and better. That's the kind of kingdom we're talking about here. So, whoa, this seems, just seems like, how do you know? Look, this is like, this is crazy stuff. How do we know this is going to happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Go back through this text and read it, and you're going to find out that nobody ever lifts a finger but God. 
You know, we sang that, that song, yeah, that song's great. I didn't even tell him to play the song about that we sang beforehand, but in there it says that we can't do anything about it. God's kingdom is coming. We can't, it's coming. God has the zeal, the zeal of the Lord Almighty is gonna do this, the Lord of hosts. It's not that the Lord of hosts is gonna do this. We can thank God because a host is an army and God's not gonna come and bully you. It's the zeal, that's the point, is zeal. What is zeal? Zeal is burning, it's passion. You know the Song of Solomon is all about zeal. It's all about motivation and what drives you. God is not an unmoved mover. You know, when Jesus drove them out of the temple with a leather whip, he made that whip. He went down, he got the leather. He says, the zeal of of your house has consumed me. God is not a God who is just passive. He is not detached. God is passionate. And it says that if there's something God is passionate, it's about enthroning his son to rule this kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is calling us today to repent because this is going to happen. Jesus is going to rule and reign. And if we really believe this, I don't care what it is. I don't care how many, what it is in your life. I don't want to be, you know, not compassionate. We need to grieve. We're emotional beings. I get it. But that offsets things in a powerful way. And the eye of faith can see that can see that his kingdom is going to come, that God's zeal is wrapped around the triumph of his son, Jesus Christ, the world's true king, who will bring all things together in heaven and earth. He's going to put an end to justice and oppression. He's going to bring righteousness. He's going to establish his empire of grace. And you know what? It has nothing to do with us because the zeal of the Lord is committed to this. It's nothing to do with us. And we can be a part of that. Those of us who walk in darkness, we can be a part of that good news. So are you walking in darkness this morning? Let me ask you this. Do you see the darkness? You know, this good news is for people that get it. They know there's darkness in this world. They don't think they can cobble their life together. Their life is, you know, not so bright that they have to wear shades because it's just everything's so great. But for those of us that realize, you know, Man, I'm broken. This world is broken. That's a start. If you're in darkness, there is a light. Unto us, a child's born. Those of us that see that we're in the darkness, Jesus came for us. And only his rule and the hope of his kingdom can point the way forward for our lives. Here's a question for us Christians. Are we zealous for what God is zealous for? We're Americans. We love our country. I love our country. I've lived in other countries. I love coming back to America. And you know what? We have all kinds of ideas of how to make this country better. And in any healthy church, there should be a difference of opinion. But let's just stop for a second and think about this. There's a difference between political opinion and political emotions. And if our lives are dominated by a political emotions about this country, we have to ask if the zeal of God matches our zeal. And if it doesn't, we need to repent. Right? Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So how do we repent? How do we come to see that, as the angels announce, unto you this day is born a savior. I'm going to end with this. 
And actually, our architecture is already screaming it out. How do we become people that move from darkness to light? You know, we have two giant circular stained glasses. You don't need to look right now, but the one in the back above the balcony is of Jesus welcoming the little children. It's in conversation with this stained glass. These are the angels. Unto you this day is born a child. Jesus is welcoming the little children. Unto you this day is born a child. We have a theology of childhood in this church. That one is pointed outward. And the message is this, come. Become as a child if you're going to see the God who came as a child. It's a beautiful message. It's thought through. So how do we enter into the light? How do we come to see that this kingdom is the deepest answer to our hopes and fears and dreams? How do we find help in the darkness? We need to become like little children and just ask God somehow to keep us from thinking in the ways we've been in order to think. He came for us. Unto us was born this child. Children have that capacity. They have that openness. They have the capacity to believe. And the problem is, is the bold message of Christmas is too big for us to believe. We need the imagination of little children. And, you know, children are so filled with joy. Right? Because they can be open to things. May God make us like children so that we can see that God became a child in order to rescue this world of darkness. Amen.